Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Murderous Roots and our Summer of Justice. I am Denise Gilhart, a genealogist hoping to become a paid one someday. Oh, and I'm her trusty sidekick, Zelda, who is delightful. Yes, you are. We're so excited to talk today because, Denise, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually, especially because a lot of the cases that we look at are old, old cases, you know, like pre-1900s. And, and, you know, honestly, there is something sort of morbidly amusing about some of it. And this is one of those cases where there is nothing, nothing. There is no humor. No. There's no, um, it's, it's just horrible from the beginning to the end. Yes. You know? And so I'm just like, and, um, yeah, so... Um, before we leap in, how has your week been? <laughs> we probably should do that. It's been okay. It's been a little busier than I anticipated. Um, went to the pool three times with the kids. I'm discovering that nice. I love taking them to the pool because they get in the pool and I sit back and I relax and I don't have somebody <clears> going, mom, 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 multiple times in like a two hour period. Oh, nice. So I can actually read a book, kick back. The only time I tend to get in the pool is when they have like a 15 minute time period for adult swim. Uh, and then I do my that's favorite. Okay, I love floating. And that's what I do. <laughs> I just lay back uh-huh. on my back and float in the water. And then life is grand. Oh, nice. And then I also this week had, um, there's a friend of mine. Um, she was planning to move out to Maine in August. But her plans changed this summer when she discovered her sister who lives down in Texas has cancer. And so her husband encouraged her, said, let's just move down there temporarily. We'll go to Maine eventually. But I know you want to take care of your sister. Let's just go. So she came back so they can pack stuff and everything and stop by. And so I spent two more two days more with a lot of time with her (laughs) than I wasn't anticipating. So threw my work schedule a little off, but you know what? Sometimes it's worth it for your friends who need that love and support. And she's been an awesome friend. She also is fabulous because every time she looks at me, she goes, I swear you're just my age. She's thirty (laughs) two. And so I I will take looking like I'm in my thirties any day from Yeah. I'm pretty sure I don't, but I'll go with it. <laughs> and how about you, Zelda? How's your week been? Uh, you know, it's been, it was, it was a week, right? Um, <laughs> actually, things are great. Uh, my job's going great. Uh, my health is improving every day. So that's really nice. But they were out of outshine bars at the store today. And I decided oh. that was going to be my focal point for grumpiness because it's like, they're hard to kind of keep in the store. They're super popular um, oh. because they're amazingly delicious. If you get the chance, and I, we, they don't even give us advertising in my, uh, any advertising. Yeah, but money. if you give us advertising, but, we'll talk about them all the time and we'll eat them all the time too. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, during the pandemic, I think that's the only thing that kept me from getting scurvy were those outshine bars. So, 
I like outshine bars. They're really good. They're so good. I don't um, get them because I never get to eat them. Oh, the kids get to them first. Yes, always. I need to Those find a good place kids. in our, our standalone fr- freezer to hide mm-hmm. them. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you do. Because you deserve an outshine bar, damn it. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's summertime. <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of summertime. Yes. I guess we should get into this because. It's a hard I, one, but it's. It's, it's hard. It's but, Emmett Till, mm-hmm. which I think everybody should know because we talked about it last week. Right. Um, so it's just it's just awful all around and you know as a person who grew up in northern indiana and lived in chicago and um spent a lot of my time in that area i had always known about emmett till and i didn't realize that there are people today who don't know who emmett till was and so i'm really glad that we're doing this episode Mm -hmm. because this is something that should never ever be forgotten right it's very important to know so starting from the very beginnings so Emmett Till was born on July 25th, 1941, in Chicago. He was the son of Mamie Carthen and Louis Till. Now, Emmett's mother, Mamie, was born in the small Delta town of Webb, Mississippi. This will become relevant later on. Yes. When Mamie was two years old, her family moved to Argo, Illinois, as, as part of the great migration of rural black families out of the South to the North to escape violence, lack of opportunity, and unequal treatment under the law. So let's talk about Mississippi for a minute. So, yeah. Back in the 1950s, Mississippi was the poorest state in the United States. Now, in 2022, it it still is. Yep. They have a GOP supermajority, so that's unlikely to end anytime soon. But in addition to being the poorest state, it has a really egregious history of abuse and murder of black people even after slavery had ended. Mm-hmm. The 1950s were still full bore Jim Crow, Jim Crow era where black people were disenfranchised from the vote and subject to the whims of the white people around them. So statistics on lynchings began to be collected in 1882. Since that time, more than 500 African-Americans have been killed by lynching in Mississippi alone and more than 3000 across the South. Now, most of those incidents took place between 1876 and 1930, and they were far less common by the mid-50s, 1950s, um, but these racially motivated murders still occurred. Throughout the South, whites publicly prohibited interracial relationships as a means to maintain white supremacy. Even the suggestion of sexual contact between black men and white women could carry severe penalties for black men. So a resurgence of the enforcement of these Jim Crow laws was evident following World War II when African-American veterans started saying, hey, wait a second, we fought for equal rights for everyone. And they started pressing for those equal rights in the South. Yeah, how dare they? I know. What are they thinking? That the Constitution meant what it said? That all people are created equal? Ha ha ha. (laughs) Okay. So, but you know, Emmett grew up in Chicago, Illinois. And so while Chicago was and is still a very segregated city, the civil rights movement was going hard and strong and making changes. I mean, this was the place of Ida B. Wells. In fact, they just renamed Congress Parkway in downtown Chicago after Ida B. Wells, by the way, just like a couple years ago. It was very confusing at first. (laughs) Um, And the Congress of Racial Equality was created in the 1940s in Chicago. 
So Emmett seems to have gone through his childhood believing he was every bit as worthy as any white child of respect and decent treatment. Mm -hmm. Of course, we say, right? But back in the South in the 1950s, that was a radical idea. So Emmett's mom, Mamie Till, mostly raised Emmett with her own mother as she and Louis Till separated in 1942. In 1945, Louis Till, while serving in the U.S. Army, was court-martialed and executed for murdering one woman and raping two others. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because I bet Denise has more on that topic. I have a little bit more, yeah. At age six, Emmett contracted polio. Now, this was before the polio vaccine was available, by the way. And (laughs) Denise, boy, howdy, if we ever wanted to talk about racism in medicine, vaccines would take us on a wild ride. Oh, that would be, I don't know if I want to go there. I would be be crazy and angry. (laughs) But this polio left him with a stutter and whistling was one of the assists he used if he started to stutter. Oh, I know, that's right? Key this, to the story. This is we will need this later, children. So, Mamie and Ever, bleh. Mamie and Emmett moved to Detroit, where she met and married Pink Bradley in 1951. Emmett preferred living in Chicago, so he returned there to live with his grandmother. His mother and stepfather rejoined him later that year. After the marriage dissolved, I think in 1952, uh, Pink Bradley returned to Detroit. So, Mamie Bradley and Emmett lived together in a busy neighborhood in Chicago's South Side near St. Louis and 64th. The house still stands today. You can go Mm -hmm. by and wave. Mamie recalled that Emmett was industrious enough to help with chores at home, although he sometimes got distracted. His mother remembered that he did not know his own limitations at times. Following the couple's separation, Bradley visited Mamie and began threatening her. At only 11 years old, Emmett, with a butcher knife in hand, told Bradley he would kill him if the man did not leave. But, you know, Emmett was basically a happy, normal kid. (laughs) He and his cousins and friends pulled pranks on each other. Uh, One story related was that they were on an extended car ride and his friend fell asleep, so he put his friend's underwear on his head. (laughs) Which I think is kind of funny. Probably was, you know, typical of a 10-year-old boy, right? It sounds like a typical preteen type of existence. Exactly. And they played pickup baseball games. Um, and apparently he liked to dress nice and was often the center of tension around his friends. So he sounds like basically a fun, normal kid. Right. So when he was 14, which was in 1955, Emmett and two of his Chicago cousins were invited to spend some time with Mamie's family down in Money, Mississippi. And they were, like, really excited to see this place they had not visited before. And it was so unlike the streets of Chicago. And they'd be seeing family they had never met. They stayed with their uncle, Mose Wright, at his sharecropper farm. Before they left, Mamie warned Emmett that the South was very different from Chicago. And he needed to be careful about his behavior on white people. And he agreed he would. So... Emmett arrived in Money, Mississippi on August 21st, 1955. A few days later, just on August 24th, he and his cousin Curtis Jones skipped church where his uncle was preaching, because, I mean, honestly, who hasn't? Yeah, you know? well, yeah. <laughs> and joined some other boys at the local store, Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. This is a decision that would have ripple effects across the globe and for the almost seven decades since this happened. Yes. So Carolyn Bryant was staffing the store alone that day when the boys arrived to buy candy. 
There's conflicting testimony, including testimony that was later admitted to being lies. Of course, they lied. I know, right? Like, people lied for so many different reasons, and and some of it was so egregious. And then sometimes it was for their own protection, if -hmm. they were happened to be black themselves. Exactly. So, Carolyn said that 14-year-old Emmett Till grabbed her hand while she was stocking candy and said, How about a date, baby? She said that after she freed himself herself from his grasp, the child followed her to the cash register, grabbed her waist, and said, What's the matter, baby? Can't you take it? Carolyn said she freed herself, and Emmett then said, You needn't be afraid of me, baby, and used one unprintable word, which is in quotes, and said, I've been with white women before. Bryant also alleged that one of Emmett's companions came into the store, grabbed him by the arm, and ordered him to leave. Now, okay, I've known 14-year-olds in my time, right? I'm going, that story makes zero sense. No sense at all. What skinny little 14-year-old boy is going to have those kind of brass behaviors? (laughs) I wasn't going to use that word. Um, to, To do that to a grown woman, you know? I'm like going, that's not, I mean, let alone just saying it, but to touch her? Well, and even though in Chicago there was a little bit more equality, I would say, mm-hmm. it wasn't that equal. Oh, no. And she was nowhere near his age. She was 21 years old at the time. Well, that, that's the other part. I mean, I just don't see this 14-year-old being that advanced and that knowledgeable on that language. Mm-hmm. And especially not doing it to a white woman. Maybe saying, right. you're pretty or something, but never that far. Well, and the one that got me, too, was when she says, he said, you needn't be afraid of me, baby. Needn't be afraid. What 14-year-old in the history of the world has ever talked like that? Right. So, yeah, it's just nuts. So there are other accounts, of course. Um, Some other accounts say that Emmett whistled at her. Well, let's remember he whistled sometimes due to a stutter, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, Emmett's cousin... Simeon Wright claims he entered the store less than a minute after Emmett was left alone inside with Bryant, and he saw no inappropriate behavior and heard no lecherous conversation. Mm -hmm. Simeon said Emmett paid for his items and we left the store together. In their 2006 investigation of the cold case, the FBI noted that a second anonymous source who was confirmed to have been in the store at the same time as Emmett and his cousin supported Simeon's account. So after Simeon and Emmett left the store, Carolyn went outside to retrieve a pistol from underneath the seat of a car. (laughs) The teenager saw her do this and left immediately. It was acknowledged that Emmett whistled while Carolyn was going to her car. However, it is disputed whether Emmett whistled toward Carolyn, which is what all the white people were saying, or toward a checkers game that was occurring just across the street, which is what everyone else was saying. Yeah. So one of the other boys ran across the street. I'm sorry, what? It's insane. It's insane. So, and again, we're talking about kids here. These are just kids. One of the other boys ran across the street to tell Emmett's cousin, Curtis Jones, what happened in the store. When the older man with whom Jones was playing checkers heard the story, he urged the boys to leave quickly, fearing violence. Carolyn told others of the events at the store, and the story spread quickly. Now, the kids did not tell their uncle Moe's right because they were afraid they'd get in trouble. Mm. So Moe's had no idea what was about to happen. Emmett said he wanted to return home to Chicago. 
Of course. Yeah. And important part to this is that Carolyn's husband was named Roy Bryant, and he wasn't home at that point. He was on an extended trip trip hauling shrimp to Texas and didn't return home until August 27th. Right. So there's a historian, Timothy Tyson, who said that an investigation by civil rights activists concluded Carolyn Bryant did not initially tell her husband Roy about the encounter, and Roy was told by a person who hung down around their store. Roy was reportedly angry at his wife for not telling him. Carolyn told the FBI she didn't tell her husband because she feared he would beat Emmett up. So, apparently she knew her husband pretty good. Yeah. When Roy was informed of what happened, he aggressively questioned several young black men who entered the store. Yeah, aggressively is a nice way to put it. That after that evening, Roy, with a black man named J.W. Washington, approached a black teenager walking along a road. Roy ordered Washington to seize the boy, put him in the back of a pickup truck, and took him to be identified by a companion of Carolyn's who'd witnessed the episode with Emmett. Friends or parents vouched for the boy in, in their store, and Carolyn's companion denied that the boy Brighton Washington seized was the one who had accosted her. Somehow, Bryant learned that the boy in the incident was from Chicago and was staying with Mose Wright. Several witnesses overheard Roy and his 36-year-old half-brother, John William J.W. Milan, mm-hmm. discussing taking Emmett from his house. In the early morning hours of August 28, 1955, sometime between 2 and 3.30 a.m., Roy and J.W. drove to Mose Wright's house. J.W. was armed with a pistol and a flashlight. He asked Mose if he had three boys in the house from Chicago. Now, Emmett was sharing a bed with another cousin. There were eight people in the small two-bedroom cabin. Mm -hmm. J.W. asked Mose to take him to the N-word who did the talking. Emmett's great-aunt offered the men money, but J.W. refused as he rushed Emmett to put on his clothes. Mose Wright informed the men that Emmett was from up north and just didn't know any better. J.W. reportedly then asked, How old are you, preacher? To which Mose responded, 64. J.W. threatened that if Mose told anybody, he wouldn't live to see 65. The men marched Emmett out to the truck. Mose said he heard them ask someone out in the car if this was the boy, and he heard someone say yes. Now, normally, I don't go into too much detail about what they do to the the people that they kill, but I'm going to be a little more detailed than usual, just because this is something people need to know. It's important. They tied up Emmett in the back of a green pickup truck and drove toward town. According to some witnesses, they went back to the grocery store and recruited two black men. The men then drove to a barn and drew. They pistol-whipped him on the way and reportedly knocked him unconscious. Willie Reed, who was 18 years old at the time, saw the truck passing by. Willie recalled seeing two white men in the front seat and two black males in the back. Some have speculated that the two black men worked for JW and were forced to help with the beating, although they later denied being present. So Willie said that while walking home, he heard the beating and crying from the barn. He told a neighbor, and they both walked back up the road to a water well near the barn where they were approached by J.W. J.W. asked if they heard anything. Reed responded, no. Probably because they were terrified, right? Right. I mean... Especially if he had a reputation of being violent. Exactly. And and both of them did, at that point, have a reputation. Others passed by the shed and heard yelling. A local neighbor also spotted... A guy whose nickname was Too Tight, his name is Leroy Collins. That's the only humor we have in this, is somebody with yeah. a nickname Too Tight. 
At the back of the barn, washing blood off the truck and noticed Emmett's boot. JW explained he'd killed a deer and that the boot belonged to him. Mm. Now, some claim, although of course it cannot be proven, that Emmett was shot and tossed over the Black Bayou Bridge in Glendora, Mississippi, near the Tallahatchie River. Right. The group drove back to Roy Bryant's home in Money, where they reportedly burned Emmett's clothes. Meanwhile, Mose Wright stayed on his front porch for about 20 minutes, waiting for Emmett to return. From what I understand, they assumed that they'd beat up the boy, toss him out somewhere, and then he'd get home. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't go back to bed. Um, a little later, he and another man went into the town, got gasoline, and drove around trying to find Emmett. They returned home about 8 a.m. because they couldn't find him. After hearing from Mose that he would not call the police because he feared for his life, his, uh, Emmett's cousin, Curtis, placed a call to the LaFleur County Sheriff and another to his mother in Chicago. Distraught, his mother called Emmett's mother. Right. Mose and his wife, Elizabeth, drove to Sumner, where Elizabeth's brother contacted the sheriff. So, Roy and J.W. were questioned by the LaFleur County Sheriff, George Smith. They admitted they had taken the boy from his great uncle's yard, but claimed they had released him the same night in front of Bryant's store. Now, Roy and J.W. were arrested for kidnapping. Okay, this is a surprise, considering the times, but they were right. arrested for kidnapping. Word got out that Ev- that Emmett was missing, and soon Medgar Evers, you might recall him from last week, Mississippi State Field Secretary for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, mm-hmm. and Amzie Moore, head of the Boulevard County Chapter, became involved. They disguised themselves as cotton pickers and went into the cotton fields in search of any information that might help find Emmett. Three days after his abduction and murder, Emmett's swollen and disfigured body was found by two boys who were fishing in the Tallahatchie River. His head was very badly mutilated. He had been shot above the right ear. An eye was dislodged from the socket. Mm-hmm. There was evidence he had been beaten on the back and the hips. And his body was weighted by a fan blade, which was fastened around his neck with barbed wire. This is a boy. This is a 14-year-old boy they did this to. I know. He was nude, but was wearing a silver ring with the initials LT and May 25th, 1943 carved in it. His face was unrecognizable due to trauma and having been submerged in water. Mose Wright was called to the river to identify Emmett. The silver ring that Emmett was wearing was removed, returned to Mose, and next passed on to the district attorney as evidence. After Emmett went missing, a three-paragraph story was printed in the Greenwood Commonwealth and quickly picked up by other Mississippi newspapers. They reported on his death when the body was found. The next day, when a picture of him his mother had taken the previous Christmas, showing them smiling together, appeared in the Jackson Daily News and Vicksburg Evening Post, editorials and letters to the editor were printed expressing shame at the people who had caused Emmett's death. One read, Now is the time for every citizen who loves the state of Missouri to stand up and be counted before hoodlum white trash brings us to destruction. Mm. The letter said that black people were not the downfall of Mississippi society, but whites like those in the white citizens' councils that condoned violence. Oh, I like that letter. Yeah. And because there were letters that said exactly the opposite. So it was, you know, it was, and it was a tumultuous time. So Emmett's body was clothed, packed in lime, placed into a pine coffin and prepared for burial. It may actually have been embalmed in Mississippi. Um, I don't have the exact right. citation for that. 
Mamie Till Bradley demanded that the body be sent to Chicago. She later said that she worked to halt an immediate burial in Mississippi and called several local and state authorities in Illinois and Mississippi to make sure her son was returned to Chicago. There was not a post-mortem examination done by a doctor on Emmett. Lord. <laughs> so, the, I know, right? The A.A. Rayner Funeral Home in Chicago received Emmett's body. Upon arrival, Mamie insisted on viewing it to make a positive identification, later stating that the stench from it was noticeable two blocks away. Mm. She decided to have an open casket funeral, saying, there was just no way I could describe what was in that box. No way. And I wanted the world to see. Right. And the world saw. Tens of thousands of people lined the street outside the mortuary to view Till's body. And days later, thousands more attended his funeral at Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ. Photographs of his mutilated corpse circulated around the country, notably appearing in Jet Magazine and the Chicago Defender, both black publications generating intense public reaction. According to The Nation and Newsweek, Chicago's black community was aroused as it has not been over any similar act in recent history. Mm -hmm. Time later selected one of the jet photographs showing Mamie Till over the mutilated body of her dead son as one of the hundred most influential images of all time. For almost a century, African Americans were lynched with regularity and impunity. And now, thanks to a mother's determination to expose the, bar the barbarousness of the crime, the public could no longer pretend to ignore what they couldn't see. I just love that quote. Till was buried on September 6th in Burr Oak Cemetery in Alsip, Illinois. So, what happened to the good old boys? Well, Tallahatchie County Sheriff Clarence Strider, who initially positively identified Emmett's body and stated that the case against J.W. and Roy was pretty good, on September 3rd announced his doubts that the body pulled from the Tallahatchie River was that of Emmett. Mm -hmm. He speculated that the boy was probably still alive. Then he suggested that the recovered body had been planted by the NAACP, a corpse stolen by TRM Howard, who colluded to place Till's ring on it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him later, but we're going to talk about That's how so... this sheriff, it's disgusting. And I saw and that he... in some of the papers, like, oh, mm -hmm. well, it can't really be his body. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So Strider changed his account after comments were published in the press denigrating the people of Mississippi, later saying, the last thing I wanted to do was defend those peckerwoods, but I just had no choice about it. Really? You had no choice, huh? Huh? You're the county sheriff and you had no choice? I love I these people think who so. think they have no choice when we all can make choices and the choices we make are up to us. Uh-huh. And sometimes exactly like no choice, you know, you... you mm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Every single black person involved in this was braver than any of the police were. Any of, yeah. Any of the white so, people involved for the most part. Mm -hmm. So Roy and JW were indicted for murder. Let's take a moment and appreciate that because nobody expected that to happen. Right. And the state's prosecuting attorney, Hamilton Caldwell, was not confident he could get a conviction in a case of white violence against a black male accused of insulting a white woman. A local black paper actually expressed surprise at the indictment and praised the decision, as did the New York Times. Mm -hmm. the, high profile, the high profile comments published in Northern newspapers and by the NAACP were of concern to the prosecuting attorney, Gerald Chatham, 
He worried that his office would not be able to secure a guilty verdict despite compelling evidence. Mm -hmm. Having limited funds, um, J.W. and Roy initially had difficulty finding attorneys to represent them, but then five attorneys at a Sumner law firm offered their services pro bono. And then, because, you know, the idiots had supporters, right. um, They those supporters placed collection jars in stores and other public places. You know how, like, they do when they're fundraising for a kid's surgery? Oh, my um, gosh. I think I'm going to be ill. Yep. They eventually got $10,000 for the defense. That's $10,000 in $1955. I mean, could you imagine somebody doing that today to raise funds for something like... Well, actually, I could. Never mind. I was going to say, gonna say Charles uh, Manson, and I'm like, yeah, people probably yeah. would. Or Trump. Think oh. about his legal defense fund. Oh, and he didn't well, even have a like a legal con. defense fund. Oh yeah, he was such a con man. He is such a con man. Yeah, he'll. he'll and maybe he'll end up in jail too someday. So the trial was held in the county courthouse in Sumner, the western seat of Tallahatchie County, because Emmett's body had been found in that area. Mm-hmm. Sumner had one boarding house. The small town was besieged by reporters from all over the country. David Halberstam called the trial the first great media event of the civil rights movement. A reporter who had covered the trials of Bruno Hoffman and Machine Gun Kelly remarked that this was the most publicity for any trial he had ever seen. And that's Machine now, Gun Kelly from back then, not the current musician today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He was a mobster. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so no hotels, of course, were open to black visitors. Um, but of course, you know, Mamie Till Bradley arrived to testify. There were also mm-hmm. black congressmen, Charles Diggs from Michigan and another person. Um, they ended up staying, along with some black reporters, at TRM Howard's home in Mound Bayou. Located on a large lot and surrounded by Howard's armed guards, it resembled a compound. Now, I just want to mention T.R.M. Howard was an iconic, badass civil rights figure. He was a well-educated surgeon, wealthy, and absolutely dedicated to civil rights and loved the Second Amendment. So he was always well-armed wherever he went. So back to the main story. Okay. The day before the start of the trial, a young black man named Frank Young arrived to tell Howard he knew of two witnesses to the crime. Levi Too Tight Collins mm-hmm. and Henry Lee Loggins were black employees of Leslie Malam, J.W.'s brother, in whose shed Emmett was beaten. Collins and Loggins were spotted with J.W., Roy, and Emmett. The prosecution team was unaware of them. Sheriff Strider, remember him? Oh, Big yeah. jerk. Booked them into the Charleston, Mississippi jail to keep them from testifying. Holy shit. Yeah. How yeah. did that not... I mean, that broke so uh-huh. many, like, even judicial rules. <laughs> uh-huh. 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 So, the trial was held in September 1955 and lasted for five days. Attendees recalled that the weather was very hot. The courtroom was filled to capacity with 280 spectators. Black attendees sat in segregated sections. Press from major national newspapers attended, including black publications. Black reporters were required to sit in a segregated black section and away from the white press, farther from the jury. Sheriff Strider welcomed black spectators coming back from lunch with a cheerful, hello, N-words, because he's an asshole. Some visitors from the North found the court to be run with surprising informality. Jury members were allowed to drink beer on duty, and many white male spectators wore handguns, as one does, Mm -hmm. right? 
The defense attorneys attempted to prove that Mose Wright, who was addressed as Uncle Mose by the prosecution and Mose by the defense, not Mr. Wright or Reverend Wright, which would have been appropriate in a court setting. Correct. I'm actually using a lot of first names with this because there's so many last names that are the same. I, I want to make understand. sure I'm differentiating. So it isn't about respect for people. It's about making sure we all know who and, I'm And those also went by preacher, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm so aggravated with all of this, which I can't even imagine what his poor family went through. I can't, I, I even can't imagine. imagine the black community feeling yeah. so beyond frustrated and hamstrung and they can't do anything and they see what's happening. They know what's about mm-hmm. to happen to this child that happened to this child. And then they're yeah. watching this, you know, dog and pony show. It's insane. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway. They were the defense attorneys attempted to say that Reverend Mose Wright could not identify Bryant and Milan as the men who took Till from his cabin. They noted that only J.W. Milan's flashlight had been in use that night and no other lights in the house were turned on. <laughs> okay, that's crazy. Now think about this. They live in a small town. Everybody knows everybody else. That's, right? That's crazy. And they know their voices, yeah. everything. Yeah. So Mose Wright's testimony was considered remarkably courageous. Mm-hmm. It may have been the first time in the South that a black man had testified to the guilt of a white man in court and lived. Mm-hmm. In the concluding statements, one prosecuting attorney said that what Emmett did was wrong. So nobody's like trying to say Emmett didn't do all those horrible things. Right. Even though he didn't. But even know. though he didn't do them, they were they took the tack that, OK, what Emmett did was wrong, but his actions warranted a spanking, not a murder. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the chat prosecutor, Gerald Chapham, passionately called for justice and mocked the sheriff and doctor's statements that alluded to a conspiracy with the NAACP. The defense stated that the prosecution's theory of the events of the night Emmett Tilde was murdered was improbable and said the jury's forefathers would turn over in the grave if they convicted Roy and J.W. Only three outcomes were possible in Mississippi for capital murder, life imprisonment, the death penalty or acquittal. Now let's remember this was an all white male jury because women and black people were not allowed to serve oh, yeah. on the jury. On September 23rd, this jury acquitted both defendants after a 67 minute deliberation. Mm-hmm. One juror said, if we hadn't stopped to drink pop, it wouldn't have taken that long. And one juror in the seventies, when asked what he would do now that things had changed in Mississippi, said, I'd still find him not guilty. Yep. Mm hmm. So what was interesting, too, is afterwards, one juror said they'd voted twice to convict. But on the third discussion, voted with the rest of the jury to acquit. In later interviews, the jurors acknowledged that they knew that Bryant and Milam were guilty. They simply didn't believe that life imprisonment or the death penalty were fit punishment for whites who killed a black man. Ah. Uh, so in yeah. other words... You know, had they been like five mm-hmm. years in prison, a slap on the wrist, that's appropriate. Yeah. But if the situation had been reversed, then the black man would have gotten the death penalty. Absolutely. And that Absolutely. was appropriate. Absolutely. Because black people are less than human, apparently, mm-hmm. in the, their eyes. Yep. Now, they still had charges against them for kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And they went before a grand jury in November 1955. And the grand jury declined to indict mm-hmm. um, Roy and J.W. for kidnapping, despite their own admissions of having taken Emmett. 
Oh, my word. Mo's right. And the young man, remember Willie Reed, who testified to seeing J.W. enter the shed, mm-hmm. both, te- both testified in front of the grand jury. After the trial, T.R.M. Howard paid the costs of relocating to Chicago for Wright, Reed, and another black witness who testified against Roy and J.W. Mm-hmm. in order to protect the witnesses from reprisals for having testified. Right. Now, Willie Reed, who later changed his name to Willie Lewis to avoid being found, continued to live in the Chicago area until his death on July 18th, 2013. And just as a little factoid, he avoided publicity and even kept his history secret from his wife until he was she was told by a relative. Wow. Reed began to speak publicly about the case in the PBS documentary, The Murder of Emmett Till, that aired in 2003. So, let's add some salt to this wound, okay? So... Protected against double jeopardy, Roy and J.W. struck a deal with Look Magazine in 1956 to tell their story to journalist William Bradford Huey for between $3,600 and $4,000. The interview took place in the law firm of the attorneys who had defended them. Huey didn't ask the questions. Bryant and Malam's own attorneys did. Neither attorney had heard their clients' accounts of the murder before. According to Huey, the older Malam was more articulate and sure of himself than the younger Bryant. So, and remember, you know, Bryant was only 25 when this happened. So he's 27. Um, So he ruined his whole life. uh, And he lived a while. Oh, yeah. So J.W. admitted to shooting Emmett, and neither of them believed they were guilty or that they had done anything wrong. They shared they originally just planned to beat Emmett up and then toss him somewhere, but because Emmett wasn't humble enough, they killed him for being uppity. Oh, my word. Yeah, a 14-year-old oh, child. Uppity. So, and that's always applied to black people. I hate mm-hmm. that word. I hate it. So then, in the years that followed, there was a lot of conflicting testimony. There were a lot of theories. There were also accusations that people other than J.W. and Roy were involved. And so um, in 2004, the U.S. Department of Justice announced it was reopening the case to determine whether anyone other than J.W. and Roy was involved. Mm -hmm. So Emmett's body was exhumed and the Cook County coroner conducted an autopsy in 2005. Using DNA from Emmett Till's relatives, dental comparisons to images taken of Emmett Till, and anthropological analysis, the exhumed body was positively identified as that of Emmett Till. His skull had extensive cranial damage, a broken left femur, and two broken wrists. Metallic fragments were found in the skull that were consistent with bullets being fired from a 45 caliber gun. As required by state reburial law, Emmett was reinterred in a new casket later that year. In 2009, his original glass top casket was found rusting in a dilapidated storage shed at the cemetery. The casket was discolored and the interior fabric torn. It was in pretty bad shape, although its glass top was still intact. So the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. acquired the casket a month later. Oh, wow. So the impact of Emmett Till's murder has lasting effects to this day. It energized the civil rights movement. It inspired many songs, poems, stories, documentaries, and books. Mm-hmm. So one interesting factoid, Emmett's murder was the focus of a 1957 television episode for the U.S. Steel Hour titled Noon on Doomsday, written by Rod Serling. Rod Serling was fascinated by how quickly Mississippi White supported Roy and J.W. Although the script was rewritten to avoid mention of Emmett Till and did not say that the murder victim was black, the White Citizens Councils vowed to boycott U.S. Steel. 
the eventual <laughs> episode bore little resemblance to the Till case. Rod Serling was so ticked. <laughs> His response ultimately was the Twilight Zone, the iconic yes. anthology series that spoke truth to the era's social ills and tackled themes of prejudice, bigotry, nuclear fears, and war, among so many other topics. Twilight Zone was recently rebooted by Jordan Peele and ran for two seasons, and you can catch those, I think, on Netflix. So that is the wrap-up of Emmett Till. It's unbelievable that things like that still happen today, but we must not forget. And no. so I'm really glad we're doing this episode. And there's elements of it that ring t remind me of stuff that's going on today. The denial yep. and the way you mm -hmm. handle it. And, oh, we're going to back that person no matter what. And mm -hmm. it's still that exists. And by the way, here's a little factoid for you. So last week we did discuss Megger Ever, who lived in a county not too far from where Emmett Till was visiting. And, and, uh -huh. and it was visiting LaFleur County, Mississippi. But do you know who lived in LaFleur County, Mississippi that we also discussed last week? No, tell me. Byron Dela Beckwith lived in Greenwood. Oh, I, didn't we talk about that last week? A little bit, but you, I, we never touched on the fact that he lived in the same county as Emmett Till was murdered okay. in. Okay. And he was one of those people who got very involved after, right before the murder, actually, in all these wow groups so he for all we know he was there at the trial watching yeah and it could have been very likely that's crazy wow well i don't have much to add to zelda's information about emmett and what happened although i do have a couple things that i'll, I'll bring up and emmett was way too young to be leaving much of a paper trail on him himself <laughs> but i did find some interesting things in his family tree and some things that his mother wrote because um, his mother did write a book so that's useful to my research. Um, so as Zelda related, Emmett was an only child born into a bit of a messy home life. And that's putting it nicely. Let's start talking about each of his parents and where they came from before I go back into the tree. So we'll start with his mom, Mamie Elizabeth Carthen. Now, Mamie was born in November 1921 in Webb, Mississippi. She was the only child of her parents, although Wikipedia says otherwise. In fact, they say she had a brother named John. And hmm. if she did, I don't know where he ever was because he never showed up in a census. Hmm. So either he died young or there was a mistake made. I don't know. And I did. Hmm. I mean, I didn't get have full access to the book. I had a little preview access on Google Books. So she might have mentioned something about him. I don't know. While she was born in Mississippi, she never really grew up there. By the time she was two and a half, she and her mother had left Mississippi to join her father at their new home in Argo, Illinois. And Argo's a village in Cook County, just outside of Chicago. As Zelda discussed, the Carthen family was part of that great migration or the great northward migration that started around 1910 and wouldn't end until 1970. Um, during this time, many black families left the South and headed either northward or to large cities with economic and social opportunities like Chicago, Detroit, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, just to name a few in the north, or westward to Los Angeles, California. Before this migration started, 90% of the African-American population in the United States lived in the South, the states of the Confederacy, primarily. In fact, they were in the majority by population in three states, 
Louisiana, South Carolina, and Mississippi. By 1970, only just over 50% of African Americans lived in the South. That's how many moved North. Wow. And just under 50% lived in the rest of the country. In fact, uh, I read somewhere where, I can't remember where I read it now, that it was even more impactful than when we had a lot of immigration coming. It changed mm. that much. Not only that, but moving as they did, they did not settle in rural areas like they had lived in when they were in the South. They moved to cities, thus becoming a very urban population as a whole. According to Wikipedia, in 1900, only 20% of the black population lived in urban areas. By 1970, that number reached 80%. So it was a shift culturally wow. as well as physically, yeah. And like Zelda talked about, though, they left for a lot of reasons, you know, the social and economic, but mainly, you know, they wanted to escape the segregation, the Jim Crow laws, the lynching, and other crimes and racist ideology that they were facing in the South. Like she mentioned, in Mississippi, there were over 500 lynchings. I can't remember if you said this, but did you realize that was the largest number in all the South? I did know that, but I don't think I mentioned it. Okay. Mm -mm. The next highest being Georgia at 492, mm -hmm. followed by Texas at 352. What a shameful legacy. Yeah. So the Carson family moves to Illinois and joins other family members who had already left Mississippi and were joined by some more after they arrived. Unlike in Mississippi, where Mamie would have attended a segregated school, in Illinois, she was at an integrated school the fourth African-American student to graduate from Argo Community High School. Wow. And Mamie was smart. She was on the A honor roll during her time as a student. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't long after graduation in 1940 that she would meet Missouri native Lewis Till. Lewis was born in early 1922 in New Madrid, Missouri. I know where New Madrid is. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. And by the way, everybody, it looks like it's spelled Madrid, but that's not how you pronounce it. Yep. That's how you show that you're not from Missouri or mm -hmm. not a local. Um, just mm -hmm. now you got that little clue there. Yeah. It's a small town, though. Most people don't find themselves there. But there you go. Did you know it was founded by George Washington Morgan, the first Indian um, liaison for George Washington and the new United States? I did not know that. There you have it. That's cool. Little factoid about yeah. Missouri. Very cool. Like Mamie, Lewis was basically an only child to his parents. However, unlike Mamie, he was an orphan, with both of his parents dying by the time he was five years old. I'm not sure what brought Lewis to Chicago, likely job prospects, although I have theories we'll, we'll get to, but he found himself working for the Argo Corn Products Refining Company. The same company where Mamie's father and uncles worked. Do you ever use Argo cornstarch? Because I've got some in my cabinet right now. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine Mamie must have been wowed by Lewis. He was an amateur boxer, handsome and popular with girls. Mamie's mother, though, didn't approve of Lewis all too much, thinking he was way too sophisticated for her. But the couple married anyway in October 1940. Nine months later, Emmett was born. Aw, babies. And the person who took her to the hospital was not her husband, but her mother, the husband, was nowhere around at oh the time. Oh, God. I got to tell you, mamas are the bedrock. <laughs> 
We're some. I'm glad my husband was with me with my kids, but you know. <laughs> what, At the you, same time, I was glad when my mom got there. I can't imagine your husband being like off carousing with the boys while you're having a, bir- a baby. Oh my gosh, no. I could never. not even. Your husband is a gem. <clears throat> he he really is. Okay, the marriage between Lewis and Mamie wouldn't last, although it wouldn't officially end in divorce either. From her book that she wrote with Christopher Benson, she said that after Emmett was born, a woman of means came to visit and noticed that Emmett was hungry. And uh, Mamie had been struggling with trying to breastfeed him. She thought she was getting him enough food, but he was always kind of cranky. And so the woman let her actually ended up nursing him for her. Oh, wow. And then slept and slept. So Mamie went to the mom and said, oh, my gosh, he actually slept. And so that woman told her, well, you don't have enough milk. That's the problem. Go get yourself some formula. This is where you go to do this. And she said she was appreciative of this woman until not long after she started to learn that this woman liked to help out the husbands of the wives in the neighborhood, including her own husband. Oh, God. Wow. But I don't think it was the cheating that would end their relationship exactly. Rather, it was Lewis's abuse. In her book, she described an incident where Lewis came home and ordered her not to eat some greens, likely because they were given to them by her mother. Her mother had fixed them up and she's like, I'm not putting down these greens. I'm eating them because they're good. Mm -hmm. Well, he resented her close relationship with her mom. And when Mamie continued eating the greens, and this is a quote from the book, the next thing I knew he had pounced on me. I found myself on the floor with Lewis choking me, squeezing my neck as I coughed up the greens, squeezing harder and harder until I just blacked out. Oh my God. Makes me wonder if he thought he had killed her. Oh my God. Well, you know, a choker turns to a killer. That's yeah. every bit, everything I've ever read of people who killed have tried to strangle somebody before. Yeah. That or torture animals. Mm-hmm. When she woke, she was alone in their apartment and Mamie got ready for his return. With a hot poker and boiling water nearby, she waited. When he did come home, he called out for her. And again, as told by Mamie, as I heard him moving in my direction, I grabbed the boiling pot and threw it at him. All I heard was this blood curdling scream as he ran from the apartment. And I grabbed the hot poker just in case he doubled back. Funny enough, Lewis went to her mom's house Mm -hmm. for help. So her mom calls Mamie, who explains what happened, and then her mom called the police. Now, the police decided not to arrest him because they figured he got punished enough already for what he did. Yeah. Oh, my God. However, so Mamie's like, okay, I'm done with you. We're not living together. And she ended up having to file a protective order against Lewis, one that he violated time and again. Oh, my God. So much so that they found themselves in court and Lewis was given a choice by the judge. Either go to jail or join the army. Mm-hmm. Lewis chose the army. After basic training, Lewis and Mamie did discuss reconciling, but no decisions were made before he left. But Lewis did get a portion of his pay and have it sent to her and Emmett while he was in the army. Mm-hmm. The pay would suddenly stop in 1945, and Mamie didn't know why. Then, on July 13, 1945, she received word that Lewis had died in Italy with no explanation other than a note referencing willful misconduct. All the events, as I described, happened before Emmett was even a year old, just to keep in mind this time frame. So this all happened very quickly. 
So Emmett never grew up with his father, especially given that Lewis had been gone now for three years of his life with the U.S. Army. So what happened with Lewis? Well, he enlisted on July 9th, 1942, and was presumably sent to Europe with the Transportation Corps after basic training and an AWOL incident to visit Mamie. During my research, I found some records indicating some health concerns on his part. So I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on. So he was at the Army Hospital in 1944 on four separate occasions, February, June, November, and December, once for laryngitis and an undisclosed condition, twice for skin issues, and once, I guess he was playing sick because it said there was no disease found. I'm just curious if any of that had to do with STDs because that too was running rampant in the military at the time. That's true, and it's possible. But I learned he likely wasn't just at any army hospital in 1944. You see, in February 1944, he was court-martialed by the army in Italy and then found guilty of the rape of two Italian women and murder of another. Oh, my God. And you had briefly mentioned that. This is the incident Mm -hmm. we're talking about. So the whole of 1944 and part of 1945, Lewis was being held in the brig. Wow. So maybe it was his attempts to get out of the brig for short times. Mm-hmm. Then on July 2nd, 1945, in Pisa, Italy, Lewis was executed. Wow. Of course, after the trial of the men who murdered Till were acquitted, someone found out about Lewis's execution mm-hmm. and the reason he was executed mm-hmm. and that he didn't die in action in Italy. Mm-hmm. And this became fodder for the newspapers. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And it was used indirectly to point at Emmett as being just like his father. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. They were using it to discredit um, the witnesses and basically, you know, like father, like son to to kind of, yeah, it was, it's so gross. It's very gross, especially given that Emmett had never met his father. I mean, how naturally this upset Mamie all the more. And as she said, Emmett's being held accountable for a father he never knew. Based on the violence that Lewis showed Mamie, I could see where it's definitely possible that Lewis committed the crimes he was executed for. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, if you're willing to choke somebody, I just don't see it as out of the realm of possibility. Right. In her book, Mamie said that many of the soldiers Lewis served with came to visit her and told her a different story. Wow. They, they were like, we don't think he did this. We think he was railroaded into this. Oh, my God. And because there was a lot of racism mm-hmm. going on in the segregated army. Mm-hmm. Racism within the ranks. And, you know, this you would think that we wouldn't be shocked anymore. But it's 1940s. It's just something I hadn't thought of before either. Mm-hmm. Also, a friend of Mamie's, a former soldier in an entirely different unit than Lewis, told Mamie that his unit would often get woken up in the middle of the night by the military police, the MPs, and put into formation. Then local white women would be brought by and told to pick someone from the line. That man or men would get pulled out by the MPs, never to be seen from again. Oh, my God. You see, black soldiers have been told they were not allowed to fraternize with any white women while over in Europe. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, oh the women pointed out a man that they were just told to point out a man that they knew. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily told. They weren't saying that they were raped. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. oh, did you have sex with one of these men? Yes. We'll point him out. And that's what they did. So it could have been completely consensual, but the men would get punished. So 
Mamie does acknowledge that it's possible Lewis was guilty, but because of the rampant racism and attitudes in the army, she and his army friends were left to wonder, did Lewis really deserve the execution or not? After the death of Lewis, Mamie did the best she could to raise her son. Eventually, they'd moved to the south side of Chicago, like you mentioned, and while spending time with her cousin Juanita, she met Pink Bradley then, a man three years her junior who worked for Chrysler. They had a short and intense courtship with Pink being kind, thoughtful, helpful, and giving her lots of attention. <laughs> like love bombing. <laughs> so Mamie married him in Wood County, Ohio, just south of Toledo, on May 5th, 1951. They lived in Detroit, but, and as Zelda mentioned, Emmett returned to Argo with his grandmother. That's probably good because according to Mamie, after they married, Pink changed. He wasn't abusive exactly, but he stopped being helpful. Mm. The couple returned to Chicago in November 1951, but Pink kept leaving to go back to Detroit on most weekends. Oh my God. Yeah, that was his family. That's where he was going. And he would like, um, she gave an example of where he was going to have friends over. She expected him, he expected her to cook and get everything ready for this group. Something happened where she broke part, like she fell or not, something got knocked down and it hurt her. Mm -hmm. She's gone to the hospital and she goes, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to cook now. He goes, well, you should, because you know, this was the expectation. Oh my God. You're not following through with your responsibilities. Oh my God. And she stayed overnight at the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would be dumping his ass. Yeah. So by Christmas 1952, the marriage had ended. Two years after the death of Emmett, Mamie would marry one last time to Jean Mobley, a marriage that would last around 43 years at the death of Jean in 2000. Emmett's death changed Mamie and brought her to activism. She graduated from Chicago Teachers College in 1960 and obtained her master's from Loyola University in Educational Administration in 1976. Mamie died three years after Jean in 2003 in Chicago. She never had any other children. Now, let's talk about Lewis's side of the family. Lewis Till. He was a bit more tricky to trace, in part because he was an orphan, and that's just such a tragic tale of its own. But I did find out who his father was after much digging. His father was Pomp or Pompey Till, son of Billy Till. Pomp was born in August 1873 in New Madrid, Missouri, and he was really hard to find before the 1900 census. His name would get changed and it wasn't always Till. Oh. But I did find an article in the Poplar Bluff Citizen on January 19th, 1899. $50 in cost. Pomp Till and Jesse Wright Colored were arraigned in a state case before Justice Johnson Tuesday to answer a charge of receiving goods stolen from the H.D. Williams Cooperage Company's store a few weeks ago. The evidence was greatly against the defendants and the justice fined them $50 in cost. Upon non-payment of fine and cost, the defendants were lodged behind the bars. Wow. So in other words, they were broke. They had no money, so they had to serve time. Beyond that, Lewis did have an older brother, Henry C. Till, who was 33 years older than him. Oh, my gosh. Born in 1889. I know. The name of Lewis's mother is unknown, to me at least, Uh, much less what happened to his older brother after 1900. Pomp next married Dixie Willoughby at the end of November in 1892. According to the 1900 census, Pomp was unemployed at the time, 
but Dixie worked as a washerwoman and Henry as a day laborer. By 1910, the couple was still married, but Henry was no longer living in the home. However, Dixie's sister, Nellie Ashby, did. Hmm. Now Pomp worked as a farmhand. By 1920, Dixie and Pomp were no longer together. In fact, Pomp boarded with another family and was listed as single. So either they divorced or Dixie died, but I couldn't find a record on either end to know what happened. In January 1921, 47-year-old Pomp married 19-year-old Clarissa Green. 13 months later, they would have their only child, Lewis Till. Oh my gosh. I know that age difference. I'm not sure when Clarissa died, but I know it was before 1927. Whereas I did find the death certificate for Pomp that led to lots of questions to which I have no answers. And I hate that. Hmm. You see, Pomp died June 19th, 1927 in New Madrid. The cause of death? Homicide. Revolver wound. Oh my. I could not locate any newspaper stories on what happened. Wow. So either I need to dig a little bit more detailed and go page by page, which I don't normally have time to do. So if anybody happens to be in the area and has a local paper that can help find that, that'd be awesome. Where Lewis ended up is anyone's guess after both of his parents were dead. I couldn't find him in the 1930 or even the 1940 censuses. My hypothesis is he lived with an other family and his last name was listed as their last name. Okay. Because like the, the census takers probably, oh, this is the so family and put it all down. Yeah. I'm honestly surprised he didn't live with his maternal grandparents as they were still living. Mm-hmm. Let's go over to Clarissa's side, the maternal side. Clarissa was born around 1902 in Missouri, the sixth of seven children born to her father, Charles Green, and mother, Elizabeth Lawson, or Betty. Oh, nice. She also had an older half-brother named Samuel Green. Charles was born during the time of slavery. Whether or not he was enslaved, I can't say for certain. He lived in a slave state, so it's possible. And so I think he probably was, since I couldn't find him in the 1860 census. Because if he was a free person of color, there would have been, he would have been counted. And I couldn't find him in the 1870 census either, even though he was a free person of color at this point. He was born in Missouri around 1857, and around 1879, he married his first wife, Hannah. They had their child, Samuel, sometime in 1880. I believe Hannah must have died because around 1887, Charles married again, this time to Betty Lawson. He was 32 and she 19. Wow. And they started their family right away. And like I said, they had seven kids. Wow. In the 1910 census, I did learn a few things about the family. First, neither Charles or Betty were able to read or write, but all of their children could read and write. Yay, that's good. That is good. Their four oldest children, all boys, worked as farmhands as well as Betty and Charles. Oh, and Betty and the children were listed as mulatto. Hmm. Charles is black. And I'm going to explain what what it kind of means when you find mulatto in the census a little bit later. Okay. Some more interesting information came by way of their marriage and children. It turns out Betty had given birth to 12 children, but only seven survived. Oh my gosh, that poor woman. Yeah. And this was not a first marriage for either of them. As I already said, Charles had been married once before. But on the the census, 1910 census, it said that this was Betty's third marriage. 
which I find particularly interesting given that she was 19 when she married Charles. Yeah, I was like, what? That's yeah. crazy. So either somebody made an error on the census when they were doing that, or she got married really young. And I was also able to find out the names of her parents, that they were John and Rachel Lawson. But I don't know when they were born or where. Now, looking at all of Lewis's family, I figured out why he likely found himself in Argo, Illinois. Mm. Most of his aunts, uncles, sisters, and brothers of his mother had moved to Argo or Summit, Illinois at the time. Oh, okay. That would explain it. And many of them worked at the Argo corn refinery. Oh, okay. And that's where he started to work. Most of his family seemed to leave Missouri just before or right after the death of Charles Green in 1934. And one interesting note is I found Betty living with her son, Lee. So this would be Clarissa's brother in 1930. And, but she's listed as a widow four years before Charles died. Really? Yeah. (laughs) And she's living in Summit, Illinois and Charles died in Missouri. So I imagine that they had separated. Mm Mm-hmm. I also get from this information the fact that he goes to where the family is, that even though he was orphaned, he did know his extended family. Mm-hmm. Remember earlier when I mentioned that Mamie met Pink while visiting her cousin Juanita? Yes. I didn't find a Juanita in Mamie's family, but Lewis had a first cousin named Juanita. Oh, really? Who lived in Cook County. So maybe yeah. after, you know, being married, she considered that her cousin. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's, that's likely. Now, Mamie's family life also had some of its challenges. While she wasn't an orphan like her husband, she was the product of a broken marriage. Mamie's father on Wikipedia is referred to as Nash Carthen, but that wasn't his full name, (laughs) just the name he went by. His full name was John Wiley Nash Carthen, born in Winona, Mississippi in 1902. He was one of four boys born to his parents. One of his brothers was also a John. Uh-huh. So normally he went by Wiley. Um, he usually went by Wiley Nash Carthen. He didn't usually use the John, but showed up several times. And his other brothers were Mac and another named Emmett. Interesting. So I think we know where Emmett got his name. Mm-hmm. Around 1920, Nash married Mamie's mother, Alma Smith, making them both around 18 years old. While Nash had three brothers, Alma had five full brothers, two full sisters, as well as four half brothers. Wow. Yeah. She came from a very full house. In fact, she was kind of the second oldest because her two older sisters were twins. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Around a year after Mamie was born, Nash headed north to Chicago to secure that job for the family. And Alma and three-year-old Mamie came up in 1924. Then one morning, about eight years later in 1932, Nash got up and dressed, gave Mamie a nickel, and then never came home again. Wow. He didn't die. He just left them. Wow. His loss devastated Mamie. He would come back into her life later on, and they developed a strong relationship. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of forgiveness there. With him, And I think apologies. With him even accompanying Mamie down to Mississippi during the trial mm-hmm. and traveling with her on some speaking appearances afterwards. Wow. With her parents divorced, Mamie threw herself into schoolwork. Nash left Illinois altogether and made a home in Detroit. And that's probably why Mamie ended up in Detroit with Pink. Interesting. Yeah. 
and he met and married his second wife in Detroit, Annie Dell Washington, in July 1947. Nash would live there the rest of his days. He died in 1969 at the age of 66. Annie would end up moving to Chicago after his death, dying at the age of 95 in 1995. Wow. As for Mamie's mother, she would marry again as well. On March 2, 1933, Thomas Gaines, a widower originally from Georgia, became Mamie's stepfather. He was a much older man, 60 to almost 31. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. But my guess is he probably provided some stability for the family. I I would hope so. (laughs) His children had long ago left home, and it seemed like they had a relationship with their father. So it doesn't seem like there was anything really wrong with him. He just was a steady presence, probably. Alma's marriage to Thomas would be relatively short, but not due to problems in the relationship. Thomas died in November 1948, just 15 years later. Mm. Alma married one last time, six months after Thomas died, um, this time to Henry Spearman, an elevator operator at a steel mill. And they remained married until um, they died. Mm, That's sweet. The Carthen family was also from Mississippi, like Megger Evers' family was, that we discussed last week. And I had a little bit more success with this family than I did the Evers family. However, I did have some of the same problems. No marriage records, no death records. Some of those records were still missing. I just had a little bit more luck finding them in the census. So Wiley Nash Carthen's father was John Carthen, who was born in Alabama to his formerly enslaved parents, Charles Carthen and Melissa Walker. And John was number three of at least seven children. So quick reminder, Wiley Nash Carthen was the father of Mamie, the grandfather of Emmett. Okay. Now, while, while he, John was born in Alabama, he grew up in, I got to remember how to say this. Octibaha, so I'm, if I butcher this, please, I, I'm sorry, I tried, but my memory just went blank. Um, he grew up in Octibaha, Mississippi. It's a Cherokee word. I'm not trying to butcher it. Um, I found the family on the 1880 census there with Charles and oldest son, William, working as farm laborers and Melissa's sister, Anna, living with them. From this census, the only one I could find with Charles and Melissa, I learned that they were both born in the mid-1820s, Charles in Virginia and Melissa in Alabama. What this told me is that whoever enslaved Charles either moved from Virginia to Alabama or put him as part of the tra- slave trade. Oh. And and somebody bought him and moved him or Okay. Or he was there's all sorts of possibilities. None of them are pleasant to think about. And that the couple met in Alabama and started their family there. Since I couldn't find them again after 1880, I imagine both Charles and Melissa died sometime before 1900 because we don't have an 1890 census. It burned up in a fire. Again, Mississippi didn't share much more information on them than that. So Nash's father, John, would spend most of his life working as a farmer or farm laborer. On November 11th, 1896, John married Nancy Jane Gordon. Now their oldest son was Mac, but Mac was born in 1894. Hmm. So this could be that they got, they didn't get married until 1896. Maybe they had problems trying to get married in Mississippi and they just had started their family anyway. Maybe Mac was the son of somebody else. Mm -hmm. One of the parents isn't his parent. I don't know. 
although Mac's death record lists John as his father and Nancy as his mother. But death certificates are a bit unreliable because it depends on the person who's filling out the information and what they know. If it was filled in by the dead person, we wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. Yeah. But for some reason, the dead don't come back to fill out their death certificates. It's so rude of them. <laughs> See, I'm kind of funny. Okay. So I was unable... <laughs> I was unable to find the couple in any census after 1910 until the 1950 census where I found that John and Nancy were living in Summit, Illinois, where their youngest son, John Hayes Carthen, so that's Nash's younger brother, Nancy would die eight years later at the age of 82. I was unable to find a death record for her husband, Emmett's great-grandfather, John. I do have to say that some genealogy is pure luck. You luck into a family that's easy to trace because they left a paper trail. Mm -hmm. Or you guess at a good misspelling, or you've, it's just, sometimes it's just luck. With Nancy Jane Gordon's line, I really lucked into some information. So Nancy was born in Mississippi. And of course, when I see Mississippi now anymore, I just roll my eyes, I go, this isn't going to be fun. But she grew up where she married John, in Atibaha County, the location of Mississippi State University. Her parents were Church Gordon and Phoebe A. Bardwell. Hmm. And now, Church and Phoebe, and Phoebe was spelled F-E-B-B-I-E, -E, um, married around 1866 when Church was 25 and Phoebe was 14. Oh, my God. Wow. And, and she, she even admitted to her age on one of the censuses were asked, how old were you when you first married? So that confirmed everything for me. Wow. They had their first of 12 children the very next year, with Nancy Jane being their fifth born. Wow. And this family, this family worked really hard. Both Church and Phoebe worked as farm laborers, as well as their children when they got old enough. By 1900, most of their children had left home, except for their three youngest, mm -hmm. Peyton, Abraham, and Wesley, who all worked on the farm with them. And at that time, they also had two grandchildren li living with them. Then in 1910, I noticed something interesting. First, I couldn't find Church Gordon on the census. In fact, I could never find him again. You'd think he was dead, but I found his death record in the Mississippi Death Index listing him as dying in June 1930 hmm. in Holmes County. So either that's a different Church Gordon altogether, or he just disappeared for 30 years. I don't know. <laughs> 20 years. Um, but I did find Phoebe in 1910. At this time, she worked as a cook for a private family and was listed as a widow. Living with her was a 13-year-old grandson named Cleo Gordon, but I couldn't find out when she died. Wow. So that's my other theory, is maybe she's the one who died in 1930 and was listed as Mrs. Church Gordon oh. instead of her name, but I, I don't know, and I it's a mystery. <laughs> now, this is where I got lucky. I was able to go back two more generations on Phoebe Bardwell oh. to her grandfather, Dick Bardwell, who was born around 1800 in North Carolina. And I found him because he lived with her parents, Bembry and Mary Bardwell, in the 1870 census. And Octibia. I think it's Octibia. Maybe it's Octibia. I, you, you looked it up, huh? I did, yeah. It's a hard one. I've never heard of this county before. And I was like, surely it's not that hard to pronounce. And it, it, the spelling's very strange. That's why I have problems. I keep seeing the spelling. It makes no sense to me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Bembry 
was likely born around 1823 and married in 1830. Phoebe seemed to be their oldest, but without finding them in the 1860 census, because, you know, they were enslaved, there, there might have been more. But in the 1870 census, they had five children, Phoebe, Frank, Wade, Thomas, and Scylla, which was short for Priscilla. Oh, that's nice. Mary died sometime between 1870 and 1873, when it appears that Pembry remarried, this time to Amanda. And they had two, of, two children, Layla and Alexandra. So that's the Carthens. Now back over to Emmett's grandmother, Alma Smith, and her family. And you, Smiths, I just, you gotta love Smiths. It's so easy to research. But I was, again, I was very lucky. Alma had a lot of full and half siblings, like I mentioned earlier. And it was a family with deep roots in Mississippi. And it was the Smith side of the family that Emmett was visiting on his tragic time in Mississippi. So on this one, I'm gonna go back to the start as far back as I could get with this side of her the family. The furthest I got with Alma's side was to her great grandfather, Hilliard Talifero or Tolliver. Hmm. The way it's spelled is T A L I A F E R R O. And it's spe- it can be pronounced one of two ways, Talifero or Tolliver. I think it's pronounced Tolliver, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay. He was born around 1823 in Virginia, and I believe I found the home where he was enslaved, or at least his wife was enslaved. And his wife was Betty. And I think she was living at the Peachy R. Tolliver Plantation in Copia County, Mississippi. Now, I further confirmed this today as I was getting ready because I found Peachy's 1852 will. Oh. And the division of estate as transcribed on an old Angel Fire website. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Dedicated to remembering the names of black Americans that this person had found in their research. Wow. According to the records regarding the division of his state after his death, it had a list of the slave names. Oh, and there was Betty. Wow. And I'm pretty sure it's her because they did have one, uh, a female on the slave schedule who was about the right age. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought they had a male who's about the right age that fit Hilliard. But I didn't find him on that list of um, slaves on the will. According to the records on the division of his estate after Peachy's death, Betty was obtained by his wife, Sarah, for $800. Mm -hmm. I did not find Hilliard listed, like I said, but that doesn't mean much because he could have been either sold or gifted prior to Peachy's death. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they would make those arrangements before they died, and then the will only applied to everybody else. Mm -hmm. I also believe that if he had not been part of that um, Tolliver family, that he either lived on an estate close to Betty or was on the estate that he was sold, that she was sent to in 1852. Because they had their first child who was born around 1852 named Laura. And their next child, they had at least the one I know about, was born in 1858, was Amanda. It's so confusing because there's so many different possibilities here. How they chose their names after slavery came to an end Mm -hmm. is varied a lot. Mm -hmm. Some would take the people who's enslaved them, their, their name, Mm -hmm. but not all did. Some would make up their own last name. Mm -hmm. Someone pick out a president. That's why you get some Washington's 
and Jefferson's and, you know, a whole variety of reasons. And some, it wasn't always traditional too. They wouldn't necessarily take the husband's name. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might have a couple where it's like, my enslaver, I hate that term, but I'm oh, like, you found myself at Your loss. enslaver was really awful and we don't want to remember his name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and that's it. Your enslaver was mean. Mine was kind. Let's go with that name. So since I know that Betty was on the Tolliver estate and that ended up being their last name, mm -hmm. well, I'm pretty sure it was Betty, but I don't have 100% confirmation, just to be clear. Okay. Um, it could be that that was part of it. So we don't know where he was confirmed at least by 1870 though they were all reunited and living t together with others who were also formerly enslaved now keep in mind that a lot of this is theory at this point because again i can't prove it without dna and other um documents i believe that hilliard and betty were laura's parents but it's just as likely that one was her parent and the other was not oh and one other note all of the tollivers were listed as mulatto now this is where it's significant this indicates that an enslaver, likely an enslaver, had raped or had a sexual relationship, somebody they enslaved, resulting in a child. Mm -hmm. Indicates the child was half black, half white. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen, usually consensually in a slavery situation. Mm -hmm. But that does give clues to somebody who's looking at their family, where to keep looking. Now, living in the home with him in 1870 was also Thomas Tolliver, age 25. This is likely a son of Hilliard, and I, or maybe his brother, but I lean toward him being the son because Thomas would end up having a son that he named Hilliard. Oh, wow. And Thomas has an interesting story to tell. And this is why I believe his last name is Tolliver, because his name, his last name was misspelled on some documents and it was spelled with the literal spelling of Tolliver, T-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Mm -hmm. Thomas was born around 1845. After 1870, he would marry a woman by the name of Ann Phillips and they would have 11 children before 1900. Ann died, then Thomas remarried to Bertha. But the story I have to tell comes before his children and before marriage. Wow. It starts with a little thing called the Civil War when the small man of about five foot four inches tall and described as having as being yellow, uh. which back then that also indicates mulatto, found his way to Vicksburg, Mississippi, where the Union had control. And in December 1863, he enlisted in the United States Colored Troops. Oh my gosh! Wow. Specifically in Company H of the 12th Louisiana colored infantry which then got changed in 1864 to the part of the 50th u.s colored infantry and he was not discharged until march 1866 hmm. in vicksburg wow now this unit spent much of its time with post and garrison duty in vicksburg until 1864 so he started off just doing garrison duty probably then they went into some battles starting in 1864 but the largest battle he was involved in was the Battle of Fort Blakely near Mobile, Alabama in Baldwin County, Alabama. This was the last major battle of the Civil War and it started on April 2nd and ended on April 9th, 1865. And as it was ending, 
Lee was surrendering to Grant at Appomattox. Wow. So this is Emmett Till's third great-grandfather? No, this is his great-uncle. Okay. So this is his, like, great... Hold on. Third... No, um, second great-grand-uncle. Wow. That's so cool. I think it's really awesome. And it also led to the last major Confederate port to be captured three days later. It was a battle where 5,000 U.S. colored troops played a pivotal role in defeating the Confederate forces that they faced over the course of that week. Wow. And his unit in particular, and, and all these U.S. colored troops approached from Pensacola into Mobile. And wow. I, I love that it took those colored troops really, from what I was reading, they were a major part in why that the Union forces won. Wow, that is fantastic. I think so. I thought that was pretty awesome. So now Laura Tolliver, the oldest of Betty and Hilliard's children, mm-hmm. she married John Smith sometime around 1868, and they had nine children. Hmm. And then they also had an adopted son at one point. Now, you can imagine how hard it is to locate the name John Smith. <laughs> However, I do have a working theory that Laura's husband, John, was also a member of the U.S. Colored Troops specifically the third colored cavalry. Hmm. Now I base my theory on the following. Number one, there were only five John Smiths born in Mississippi around 1844 and 1870. I'm using this based on the 1870 census. Okay. Number two, there were more than one John Smith in the third colored cavalry. So odds are kind of going in my favor if there's at least two of them. And number three, this John Smith, great, great grandfather of Emmett, lived in Kapaya County, Mississippi after the war, making me believe he likely lived there before the war. And that's where his family came from, the Smiths. The third was organized not far from Copia County and much closer than where the other John Smiths lived. So again, theory, but I think it's supported, Uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not going to make any large bets on it either. (laughs) If this is him, then it means that John Smith enlisted at Skipwith Landing in Mississippi in November 1863. It also means he's the same John Smith who deserted the regiment at Memphis in September 1865. Oh, wow. I guess he was done serving. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that point, he had served almost two years. I don't know if I can blame him. I tried to verify via pension records, but was unable to find any John Smith any John Smith as part of the U.S. Colored Troops filing in Mississippi as being part of that unit. Since I'm not 100% positive, I won't get into all that these troops did, but they did fight bravely for the Union and to end slavery. And I I just, I'm impressed and admire the the bravery it must have taken them to go against those who enslaved them for so long. The second oldest of John and Laura's children was George Smith father of Alma. Around 1894, he married Lulu Haley, and they would go on to have eight children in 15 years. Oh my. Yes. Lulu died around 1909, likely in childbirth with her last child son, Freddie. George remarried sometime in late 1910 or early 1911 to Clara Chess, Mm -hmm. and they would have four children together. Now the Smith family didn't leave during the Great Migration like so many others. Many of the members of the family stayed in Mississippi, but after the death of Emmett, 
Some family members decide it was time to get out of Mississippi, and that was just beyond the ones who testified. Mm -hmm. And they all went up to Chicago. And I found at least six of Alma's brothers and sisters living in Chicago at some point. Wow. Now, I do want to talk about a couple of the people that were involved on the day of Emmett's death, namely two of his uncles and a cousin. We'll start with Mose Wright. When Emmett went to stay in Mississippi, he lived at one of Mamie's twin sister's houses, Elizabeth Smith. Elizabeth was just two years older than Mamie, and in 1925, she married Mose Wright, or Preacher. Mose was 10 years older than Elizabeth, but they both got married at adult ages, which is so nice. Mm -hmm. He was 35, she was 25. Mm -hmm. And they went on to have at least six children, including Morris and Simeon. So Mose and Elizabeth were Emmett's grand aunt and uncle, as well as his guardians while he was in Mississippi. And as we talked about earlier, we or Zelda talked about earlier, that's the home they went to to remove Emmett. Now, once the case went to court, Mose bravely got on that stand, not only just identified the two men, he actually pointed towards them. The small man who, I mean, and by small, I mean, he was only five foot three inches. Mm-hmm. Big in spirit, small in height. And he pointed his finger right at those defendants. And then he testified that after the men took Emmett, packed up his wife and children, took them to the town of Sumner to catch the train up north to Chicago to keep them safe. Then he went back and found the sheriff to report what the two men had done. As you mentioned earlier, he was the one to identify the body and then to let the family know that it was him. Mm-hmm. After his, he and his family moved to Chicago, they settled in. He died at the age of 85 in 1977, seven years after his wife passed away. Uh, so he lived a nice long life. I don't know if he would have been able to live that long if he had stayed in Mississippi, mm-hmm. to be honest. Now, while at the Wright home, Emmett shared a bed with his cousin, Simeon. And Simeon's full name was Simeon Brown Wright. And he was just one year younger than Emmett. He would later write a book of his own about his memories of that time called Simeon's Story, an eyewitness account of the kidnapping of Emmett Till. In the book, he recounted how the men came into the home with pistols to kidnap Emmett and his mother, Emmett's Aunt Elizabeth, begged them not to take the teen. He was also at the store with Emmett along with his brother Morris when the incident occurred. And there was also in a newspaper article read like a list of like six boys who were there. Um, And he also testified at the trial. He died in 2017 in Chicago. Now, this is an uncle that you don't hear about in the papers, but I stumbled on this article and it was interesting. Mamie's uncle Crosby Smith was one of the few of her relations to stay in Mississippi after the death of Emmett. Mm -hmm. He did go to Chicago for a time, but returned to Copia County, Mississippi, where he picked cotton for most of his life. In the Negro History Bulletin, I found, it's like a journal, I found an article all about Crosby as a witness called Crosby Smith, Forgotten Witness to a Mississippi Tragedy, that was written by David A. Shostick and published in their December 1974, January 1975 edition. Wow. Yeah. In it, Crosby talks about how his sister Mamie only came down to Mississippi a, only came down to Mississippi a couple of times with Emmett before 1955 and how Crosby got to babysit his nephew. According to him, the story told to Crosby by one of the boys with Emmett was that Emmett looked at Carolyn Bryant and said, "Gee, you look like a movie star." Wow. 
And that's all she, he said. And he said that as she handed him the gum he was purchasing. From the article, you can tell that Crosby partially blames himself for Emmett's death. According to him, Emmett was only supposed to stay with the Wrights for a couple of nights, then come to his house. However, Crosby's job had him driving a tractor until late at night, and the Wrights decided it would be best that they kept him. Mm-hmm. And this is a quote from the journal article. If they had brought him over to my place, I don't guess this thing would have ever happened. Mose could have told those men Emmett caught the train today. He gone home. Those men was just plenty drunk and looking for something to do. If Emmett hadn't been there, they wouldn't have gone another step looking for him. That's how senseless this whole thing was. Oh, my God. And also, according to Crosby, it was he who went to the sheriff after Mose came to him scared. Mm-hmm. He even spent the afternoon with the deputy looking for Emmett. And instead of attending the trial, Crosby... So I know this happened before, but he was gone because he had accompanied Emmett's body on the train to Chicago. Okay. And then he returned. His neighbors encouraged him to stay in Chicago for his own safety, but he came back and continued to work. And he related an interesting story. I don't know if interesting is the right word. He related the story of a conversation he overheard after the trial when he went to the lumber yard. I remember overhearing conversation between the man that ran the yard and one of his customers, a country plumber. The white man who ran the yard says, I could never have tied no barbed wire around that boy's neck like that. This country plumber answered him back, hell, I would have tied any kind of wire around that N-word. Wow. Crosby added that the plumber, now this is in the 1970s, was now a Mississippi Highway Patrolman. Oh my God. And that was the family tree of Emmett Lewis Till. Wow. Yeah. Well, there were some, there's some interesting and cool stories in there. You know, he came from a really great family and, yeah, you know, that the history is so rich and it was nice you were able to uncover some of it because I know how hard I it is I love being sometimes. able to do that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, another thing to note is he never knew what his father had been accused of. Mm-hmm. And his his mother didn't know, honestly. She just got the right. willful misconduct. Mm-hmm. She didn't find out what he had done until mm-hmm. the newspapers. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was shocking for her as well. Like, mm-hmm. holy, you mm-hmm. know. But there's just so much to be upset about with this type of story. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's just a tragedy all around, you know, it's just there's uh, there's no good that comes out of it, even though it, you know, Mm -hmm. flamed the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And a lot of good came out of the civil rights movement, um, but still a lot more pain. I mean, people sacrificed in huge ways in order that everybody should be, in fact, free, not just, you know, on paper free. Right. So, and, um, and God bless his mother for being so brave and being willing to was. stand up and his family being willing to stand up and not just leave town and, you know, and pretend it didn't happen. I mean, I think yeah. there's just, there's so much bravery here from all there those was. People. And it, it sound a, a couple things I've read in different places. I think one of them was the interview with Crosby um one thing he did tell in that was that his 
He worked for this white farmer and a couple of neighbors came by and told him, if anybody gives you trouble, you let us know. Mm. So they were worried about his own safety mm-hmm. and they were, it sounds like they were looking out for him, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And it was also mentioned somewhere that I think, again, it was by Crosby saying that the two men that um, were never allowed, couldn't return to that town again. Mm. They were shunned out. Oh I think gosh. it was because of that interview you mentioned where they just kind of admitted to everything. Yeah. They were pushed out of town. Yeah. Um, in some of the stuff I read, the way their lives turned out was absolutely terrible, you know, which made mm-hmm. me feel a little better um, because yeah, their karma. businesses went bankrupt. You know, they yeah. ended up basically dying, you know, lonely alcoholics. So, um, yeah, you know. But at the same time, some of the newspaper articles at the time were so. Yeah disturbing on Mm -hmm. so many different levels like Mm -hmm. and they would get mad at at his mother for saying this is what it's like to be in mississippi yeah and they're like they're wrong we don't do this this is this is a rare thing to happen yeah but we know that's not entirely true because 529 black people or is it 549 it's really high were lynched between 1880 and 1968. So it really wasn't that rare. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially when you look at the numbers of the white people who were lynched. Mm-hmm. And it, they're and, so much smaller. And it doesn't even begin to count the number of people who were beaten, terrorized, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things that fell short of murder. Right. Thousands and there was a lot more of that. Yeah. And so... um yeah, this was this was a hard one. This was a hard one, but I'm really glad we did it. And yeah. and who's up next, by the way? And a lot of our summer might be a little difficult and different mm-hmm. things, but I think this is probably the most difficult of them all. Mm-hmm. Um, next up is a little change of pace. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with Diane Fossey. Oh, I love that. Her death is a difficult, but her life is not yeah. as difficult. So mm-hmm. that should be interesting. Um, and then I think think after that i can't remember who we're going to go to next but weren't we going to do harvey milk at some point yes uh, but i think i was going to do martha p johnson after okay um diane bossy then harvey milk and then i think we'll go to fraser um b baker who i'm not going to have a whole lot of information on it will be a mini summer sode. okay <laughs> because what happened to his family afterward is tragic yeah in many ways so yeah, that's all coming up. And well, thanks for another illuminating day. Oh my You're gosh! Welcome. Oh, you too. It's gotten dark around me. I know. So. It's it's time for bed. I forgot to turn on the lights before we sat down to do this, and then there wasn't really a good break for me to run up and turn on a light. So. Um, well, you're welcome, and thanks, everybody, for joining us for another chance for us to share when murder and family meet. If you enjoyed our discussion on murder and family, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You could also help support our podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash murderousroots. For more information on this episode and past episodes, as well as merchandise, just go to our website at murderousroots.com. And of course, you can also find us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even on TikTok. Thanks, everyone.